Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, everyone. My name is Joe Armstrong, and thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, Mara Connor. Mara Connor is a delight. She's a young singer-songwriter with the perfect bona fides to match her breezy Southern California vibe. Connor was born in Los Angeles to Middle Western parents whose California dreams were big enough for them to chase them west. She studied theater in college in New York, but changed tacks when she started performing with live music ensembles, and she learned how audiences respond when you're playing yourself instead of a character. Now back in Los Angeles, Connor began working on her debut record and honing her songwriter chops, and although she's new to the game, she's artistically ahead of the curve. Connor's penchant for the heydays of California folk rock is evident in spades on her advanced releases. The video for her premiere single, No Fun, plays like a love song to the Laurel Canyon scene from long before she was born. The wardrobe, the roller skates, the pool parties, the yellow sunset lens filter, the color palette, a clever nod to the graduate, and the other star of the show, a powder blue bomber of a convertible, are all a stylistic time machine set in the Pleasant Valley Sunday world of an eternal summer California afternoon. In both her songs and in the No Fun video, it wouldn't be a stretch to expect Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, or Linda Ronstadt to be hiding just around a corner. Mara Connor is such a talented young artist with such a clear artistic vision, one can't help but wonder where she will go next. Welcome to Independence Day, Mara Connor. Hi, Mara. Hi, Joe. How's it going? It's going well, thanks. How's it going with you? It's going well. Welcome to the show. It's lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you, too. I'm uh, happy to be we've here. been trying to do this for a while. I know. Uh, like uh, one of my favorite things to do to find other great musicians and to find great music too is to talk to people in the know, right? And our common friend, Ben Riddell, uh, the uh, stalwart man of the Grand Ole Echo. The wonderful uh, Ben. Good songwriter, good human being. I like, I one of my favorite LA songwriters. I don't see Ben Riddell enough and I don't see him play shows enough. Like he's, I he's agree. Doing, he's he's doing, too busy working so hard for everyone else. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's cool. It's a selfless thing to do, but it's a good way to get your name out there, too. Yeah. So, Ben, thank you for connecting me. Uh, we love you, Ben. Uh, I love you, too, Ben. <laughs> um, but you've got, man, you've got all kinds of things happening in your world. Yeah, it's been really exciting. I started to release some music. I just put out my first single pretty recently. Right, right. No Fun, along with a music video. And you got some light and some heat out of that, which is... Uh, like you, uh, you're in Rolling Stone. Let's just reveal that first and foremost. There's a write-up about you and your new video in Rolling Stone. It's a pretty yes. cool thing. I mean, some artists, after three albums, have, haven't gotten written up in Rolling Stone. How did that come to be? It was a huge shock. Um, I put a lot of work into this 1970s-inspired music video with a lot of friends who all helped me make it come to life. And... Um, recorded the song in Nashville, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into later, um, and put it out there. It was premiered on Buzz Bands by Kevin Bronson, who I love, and he's been very supportive. And um, it just kind of took on a life of its own. Um, I have a wonderful PR company that I work with, Big Hassle, who I couldn't have done it without, but yeah. uh, we had no idea that um, that was going to going to happen. <laughs> so but uh, so to backtrack even farther, like how does a young artist without a record, your record's coming out very soon, your debut record, and congratulations, yes. I know how much work goes into making a record. It's Thank it's you. not an easy thing. So it's it's a really really big thing, especially for your first. Yeah, I think you're right, especially the first is 
it's so close to you. Yeah. Well, as they say, you know, you've got your whole life to write your first record and you've got two years to write your second record. Exactly. So, uh, but getting that, you know, that first record, it's such a big feeling, you know, like the first time, even though now we live in like a streaming world, uh, the first time you hold a copy in your hand is such a great feeling. I can't wait for that feeling. <laughs> uh, I, I can't wait for that feeling for you. And I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to it myself. Uh, let's give people, let's jump right out of the gate because there's so many things I want to talk to you about. There's so many things I want to ask you about. Uh, but I want to give people a taste of what you sound like right off the bat. And because this video got some airplay, or, you know, we're at airplay, where's it get airplay? YouTube, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's streams. Uh, MTV doesn't play videos, so it's not like it can be played on MTV. But it's really cool. Like you, like you were describing before, it's very 70s setting, 70s cars, 70s wardrobe, uh, 70s beer bottles. Uh, and there's like a, there's kind of a, a theme that runs through it that ties into the song. So I want people to go to the website, go to uh, maraconnor.com, check out the video. It's on there. It's also on the YouTubes. We'll put a link to it up on our page as well. But this is her song. It's called No Fun. It's Mara Connor, Independence Day. We'll come back. We'll talk to her about how she did this video.
Mara Connor on Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong. Pretty cool stuff, Mara, man. I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. As a kid who remembers the 70s, you know? Yeah, it's, thank uh, you. The, the funny thing is, though, it's weird to see something that's themed for the 70s that's very crystal clear, shot very clear, because a lot of the video from that time is very grainy. It's true. You know? We went back and forth deciding that, how we were going to go about yeah. that because they're stylistically very different, either doing the the truly authentic right. retro feel or kind of modern with a retro right. feel. So um, we chose the latter. You kind of straddle the line. Yeah, but I kind of I kind of want to do another one that yeah. maybe is more authentic and, you know, maybe even um, on actual film someday. That would be great. Oh, man, film. So where did you get the concept for the video? Being, you know, the song sounds kind of 70s. That's obvious. Yeah. But was that the inspiration? Well, partially. Um the song itself came to me. I was listening to a lot of George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. And um, the video concept, I think, came to me. I was just trying to think of a, a visual that could go along with the song. And I started thinking about the song title, which is no fun. And I thought it would be cool to do a video that was me in a lot of different places having no fun surrounded by people having a good time. And that yeah, was yeah. sort of the the seed. And and I also wanted it to be 70s inspired right. to match the style of the song and the influences that I, I have. And um, I ended up working really closely with my directors, uh, two female directors from New York that go by similar but different. And we kind of fleshed that out and came up with all of the little surprises and things. And um, we shot it in the Valley with a bunch of our friends who were all amazing yeah, it's very there's a, it's a little taste of magnolia if you've seen the movie magnolia yeah which is kept that you know tied into that time or actually no i'm sorry it's boogie nights it's, mm, but yeah that the same was a reference same director uh it's kind of tied into that same kind of feel that same concept uh uh anderson right paul thomas anderson yes i think if i'm if i'm if my film so. film brain is mm -hmm. clicked into the right gear right now uh, but it's, it's very cool. It's very fun. It's very stylized. Thank you. Um, so you must have had, because it's, it's not like a, a totally DIY video. You must have had a budget for this from somewhere. We had a little budget, and we worked with a really professional team that we called in a lot of favors, all of us, to um, make it look more expensive than uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, my DP friend, Christopher Ripley, is incredible. And uh, my favorite DP in the world, actually, he's LA-based. And he just did a Kendrick Lamar video mm -hmm. the week after our video. So he's doing really well. And before that, he had done this Mac DeMarco video that I really liked um, and a bunch of other great stuff. And he's also a director in his own right. And then um, we had a friend, Aza, come on, who's an amazing fashion designer. And um, she graciously did all of the costumes and yeah. looks for the video. And her clothing line, Kaye Del Mar, is actually featured on the Skater Girls in the video. Oh, very nice. Yeah, and then the, the dress, this 1970s uh, gold lame dress that I wear in the performance shot mm -hmm. in the spotlight is actually her mom's dress from the 70s. That's cool. Yeah. It seems like this is a common theme among artists, myself included. When you're going to do something, I mean, the budgets aren't like they used to be. 
No. You know, there's that whole story. Uh, I, I, I reference this a, reference this a lot on the show. Jake Slichter, he was the drummer from Semisonic. Mm. Closing time. Right, open right. Da, 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 da. So he was the drummer, and the rest of the guys had been in a band called Trip Shakespeare before that. The other two people from that band, Semisonic, and he they picked him up from somewhere else. I'm not exactly sure how, why, and he describes this in the book. But then he talks about the shooting of that video because it's it's one shot um, oh. that goes through that whole video. Or maybe very very few edits. It might be one. It might just a couple little shots that you don't know there are edits there, and how much money and time it takes to set something up like that. You know, there's some other artists or uh, directors who do that kind of thing. Totally long tracking the shots. Wonder. There was one in the first season of True Detective. There was one in Children of Men. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a very hard thing to stage to do that. And it has it, to be so perfectly right. choreographed. And to choreograph that, generally speaking, it takes money and those budgets aren't there. So I guess the point I'm getting to is that you have to call in favors Definitely. from people. Now, it's easier in this town because you might run in circles where you know a lot of people, directors of photography, uh, wardrobe people, makeup people. Right. Um, so it's you must growing up here, you must have just kind of known some of those folks. Yeah, well, one of the directors is actually a childhood friend of mine. Our mm-hmm. parents were friends growing up. That's um, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, so we we reconnected and decided to do the video together. And so it was a combination of everybody's friends just calling yeah. in all of the favors and everyone worked so hard. And um, yeah, I had this amazing editor come on board, Ross Colton, and um, a wonderful colorist, Brian Bigler, and everyone... Um, really put in a lot of time and I'm so grateful to all of them. I couldn't have done it without them. Yeah. It takes a village. It really does. You know, and it's weird being an independent artist. We were talking about this a little bit before and we were setting up how when you're an independent artist, you could, it doesn't matter what kind of art you're doing. um, Multi, you know, being a musician though, you're kind of a multimedia artist now because you can't just be a songwriter. It's true. You know, you've got to maintain your social media feed and you've got to shoot little videos. And, you know, it's become a very organic thing. Some of those can just be off-the-cuff things, but they still take time. Right. And as you do them, they still take a little bit of effort. And then you got to try to frame the shot and you got to try to put the right thing in the background so there's not a light pole sticking out of your head. You it's know? true. So, I mean, how do you manage, like, all those different aspects of your career other than calling in favors, like doing stuff yourself? Like, how do you, how do you um, manage that? Some of it has come about organically, like mm-hmm. you were saying. I think um, I got lucky when I started recording in Nashville. Um, that sort of, quote, content uh, was the last thing on my mind. I was just going into the studio um, to record these songs that were very near and dear to my heart. And, and right before I went in, that sort of flash came to me of, oh, like we have to document this somehow. Yeah. And so I I contacted my producer and said, hey, do you know anybody in Nashville that might be able to come in for a few hours and just get some footage and some some shots? And he had this great photographer friend, Skylar Howie, who came and I've used a lot of his photos. And um, he actually also shot the footage that turned into my video with Langhorn Slim for the Someone New duet that is all footage in studio. And, um, and that was just kind of a lucky thing of, yeah, yeah. finding a like-minded person. And he has a very specific style that really worked with, with yeah. the songs and stuff. Um, otherwise, I have some of the videos on my Instagram are honestly just friends or family taking videos at shows and yeah. Um, just, yeah, grabbing whatever we can while we're, while we're making music. It's amazing to me how much we as artists can do now. You know, it's... it's, it's it's brought on more work, 
right? But think of the different avenues. You know, I did a fundraiser not too long ago to make my next record. Oh, and that's great. the type of video things that I could shoot, you know, I, I didn't shoot it on my phone, but I just as easily could have. Yeah, now the iPhone is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, look, I mean, I, I suppose it's low-hanging fruit to talk about the miracles of technology and what <laughs> it can do for you. But as artists, it's empowered us and it's given us so many more avenues to be creative. It's true. You know, and with great power comes great responsibility and there's all those things and you've, uh, you know, we, I talk a lot about how just because you love something doesn't mean it's work. You still have to do the work. You know, you, it's like you, you almost, it would be very hard to exist as just an artist now who just makes music. Yeah. Because right? you, you almost have to be a multimedia artist. You have to brand yourself. Yeah. This generation definitely has that. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse, I think. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. You can't fight it. Yeah, you, know, you, just, you just kind of have to ride that. Do it or don't ride do it. Ride that wave, yeah. Um, one last question. This would be a good time to mention that the, the web-exclusive track, if you go to indepthday.com, you're doing a version, a solo acoustic version of that song, Someone New, the song that you do a duet with Langhorn Slim, who did some producing, right? Somewhere along the line, or just kind of work with him? Just duet, yeah. Just, he just, just came by. Just a lowly duet. <laughs> just a duet. No, he, he generously came in and put his beautiful voice on my song, and I'm very grateful to That's him. That's very cool. Uh, one last question before uh, we... I want to play uh, one of your live songs here in just a second is The Car. Where'd you find The Car? The Car From the was video. actually... It's a, blue, like a big old sedan yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a 1966 Chevy Impala convertible mm-hmm. that is powder blue and the car of my dreams. Um, and it, we found it on Google, honestly. I think it was one of those things where I was producing the video... Um, and my directors were probably scouting locations. They had just gotten to town and we were pulling it all together right at the last minute. And it, the car was like the last thing and Mm -hmm. we were writing back and forth and they're like, maybe we can just borrow somebody's beat up truck or something. And I was like, no guys, it's the final shot. We gotta, we gotta find a beautiful car. And you know, the, the whole video is very retro. So I, I, I was sort of dead set on it but all these cars were super expensive and i think it was just a number of phone calls i think my mom actually was the one who finally found it yeah we were we were making calls um i'm pretty sure it was the day before the shoot and um and we found it way out by lax and my dad was the one who picked it up so it was a family affair so was it just was it a place that rents cars for shoots or was it like some guy that had the car yeah no it's a rental place um I think they had said the reason we were able to get it was apparently some celebrity had taken it out for a joyride and oh, wow. technically was supposed to have it for a few more days, but they returned it early. Oh, wow. So they gave us a discount because they were like, oh, technically. Yeah, they're double billing. Yeah, exactly. So that was that was a lucky break. It's pretty cool. There's another powder blue or another blue aspect to this, and it makes me think of one more thing. Like, there's It's not like blowing a big thing for the video, like a big spoiler, but like at one point you there's a pool. Yes. And you 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 kind of jump or fall into the pool, and is that that that's very graduate? Yes, the movie The Graduates. But that was an intentional Another thing. Another reference. Um, I don't know if it was a reference from the very beginning, but I definitely looked at that footage before yeah. we started shooting because I when I was describing it to people, you know, it came up a bunch. Yeah, uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character, the protagonist. You know, he's disgusted by he's graduated from college, he's home, and he's disgusted by the like smarmy friends of his parents who are there at this little party and doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And it ties directly into what's going on in your video and exactly. your song. So very cool. I like the fact that you tied that in. Whether it's 
intentional or not, I'm going to say that it was because I think it's a cool way to do it. Uh, so my guest this week at Independence Day, Mara Connor. You can visit her, not literally. You can visit her website at maraconnor.com, M-A-R-A-C-O-N-N-O-R. California-based artist. She's got a brand new record coming out before too terribly long. The video, as you know, available on YouTube, also through her website. It's called No Fun. We've been talking about that. This first song, what's this first one you're going to do here, I think? what What is this one we decided? This is called $2 Bill. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, I wrote this song pretty recently about my move from New York back home to Los Angeles. And it's about all of the different meanings one $2 bill can mm-hmm. have. Very cool. All right, so Mara Connor is my guest in Independence Day, so check this out. I can't wait for you to hear it. Started writing down my dreams Last night it was you and me Talking like we used to do I awoke feeling blue Driving down the 101 Like I did when I was young DJ, he still plays the hits I don't know just where I fit It's just another two dollar bill In a tip jar that a stranger filled To go out west Saying this might bring good luck, I guess I drive to my childhood home When I start to feel alone Yellow roses on the fence Hummingbirds among the plants And there's another two dollar bill In a Christmas card that my Grandma mailed from the Midwest She always said it brings good luck, I guess So I keep it with me every day U.S. gold rings on your hands No room for wedding I'm not sorry what we did But oh, was that another two dollar bill You traded in for a cheaper thrill In a red dress I guess I wish you every happiness And I'll keep you with me
My name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day. It means a great deal to me that you've taken the time out to listen to me. Maybe you're in your car, maybe you're in the shower, maybe you're bored at work. In any case, it means a lot that you listen to this because I put a lot of work into it and I scour the earth to try to find great new artists, great uh, established artists. I've had people from Spain, people from Australia. Uh, we've got a hometown girl on this week's show. This is Mara Connor. Say hello, Mara. Hello. So lovely to meet you. So nice to meet you. So I'm to meet you in person because, you know, you do it like anything else. You do these email exchanges like, what's this person going to be like? Right. And you see a video. And it's also, you know, in, in the music business, you see people in a video, you know, and they it may be a character or a caricature that they're playing. You know, I'm a big fan. I'm a big Tom Waits fan. Like his whole life is performance art. Totally. Or Tom Petty, another favorite of mine. Uh, One of my the, favorites, the, too. The late Tom Petty. How, you know, people always would say, and he would say this in interviews, that you know, people think I'm the most laid-back guy in the world, but I'm the most neurotic guy in the world. It's just <laughs> this image that I've kind of cultivated as being right. this like, floppy leather hat-wearing guy. Classic. But like, you, you have, you, to accomplish that much, you would have to be dogged uh, about your work ethic, I think. Right. In any case. Anyway, so you know, he's not from Southern California. You yourself are. Where'd you grow up exactly? What part of Southern California? I grew up right in the heart of LA in a neighborhood called Brookside that's kind of just south of Hancock Park, okay. near Miracle Mile, near LACMA. And um, yeah, born and raised Los Angeles. But then school, like you decided to go somewhere else for college uh, rather than staying here, which is kind of interesting to me. Like if I, I always say that if I'd gone to undergraduate school in Santa Barbara, I would still be in an undergraduate school. I'd have 4,500 credits, (laughs) would have no degree. So why did you choose to go somewhere cold? And tell me where that is. Um, I guess I'm an only child. I'm really close with my family. And um, both of my parents are from the Midwest, actually. Where are they from? They're from Chicago Mm. and a tiny town in Iowa. My hometown. Oh, yeah, really? Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, my dad's from Chicago. You uh, Surely you've been. Yes, I have many times over the years. Yeah, I love that town. I miss that town a lot. Although when it's the winter time, I miss it less. Right, that's what to, my dad says too. I have to be one hundred percent honest about that. Okay, so anyway, I'm trying. I'm stealing your thunder. Tell no, me about no, how no, you no. wound up in college, where you went. So I think for me, I I wanted to claim a little independence, and um, which is fitting on the Independence Day mm-hmm. podcast. And um, I think I realized I wanted to move to New York specifically when I was 11 years old, when I first visited New York City. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was um, an aspiring actress. (laughs) I acted a lot as a kid, and um, it just immediately felt like home. And so I applied to a bunch of East Coast schools and had my heart set on it and ended up at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, upstate. Mm, I know Poughkeepsie a little bit. I used to go hiking because I lived in Manhattan myself. I used to take the train up. There's that little train line that runs right along the Hudson. The Metro North. That if you tell them, they don't stop there all the time, but if you tell them, there's a place they'll let you out where there's no town. Really? Because if there's a trail that goes right up to the Appalachian Trail right there, you, just, you have to tell the conductor, like, hey, I had certain trains do it, certain trains don't. Like, I want to stop at this specific place. And right in the middle of nowhere, the train will stop, the entire train. You know, I imagine the other people are probably pretty vexed by that. But then, like, all the, you know, dirtbag hikers like myself will just, they just let down a step and you just stop, sit, stand there in the gravel. The train takes off. You go across the tracks and then up into the mountains. I had no idea. Right I there. took that train a million times. Mm-hmm. I never knew. It's interesting knew. that you never knew that. Because the Appalachian Trail runs not too terribly far from where you grew up. Right. People don't think about it being close to New York, but it kind of is in a way. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, so you know, what's near there is uh, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, that yes. the the place where that's set, uh, not too terribly far from Poughkeepsie, Cold Spring is right near there. That's right, where yeah, they're yeah. right close to where it would stop. I think they used to do some sort of Halloween thing. 
I imagine they still do. Yeah, I don't think... I never went to it, but I remember some friends talking about it. Okay. So then what did you study in school? Were you studying acting, music, something completely different? I did the liberal arts thing and kind of dabbled in a bunch of things. I ended up majoring in drama, um, Mm -hmm. but by the time I started at Vassar, I pretty much was dead set on music. So, What made you switch? The summer before college, I joined my first indie rock band. I Ah. was... I was dating a guy who had a band and I started backup singing and very quickly realized I didn't want to be a backup singer. Mm-hmm. And I started writing a bunch of songs. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I was pretty much music, music, music. Had you already played an instrument at that point? Yeah, I I think I first got a guitar when I was 11. Okay. And um, took a few lessons at a, a summer camp mm-hmm. and, and then just was kind of self-taught from then on. I started writing songs when I was, I think three or four years old, because I have some really funny early recordings Mm -hmm. that um, my dad's friend from college recorded in his um, garage when I was like four. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me now, so I know how you made the switch, like in school, uh, were, what artists? Were there specific artists or were there there people in your life? For me, it was a combination of things. It was people I knew who I would see performing, uh, as well as the artists who I, you know, listened to on back then. It was cassettes, but who I just, or NLPs even, that I revered. Like, which, what combination of, was that for you? I think it was, it was a combination of that awakening right before college of joining my first band and playing around town and realizing how incredibly fun that was. And late nights, jamming with the band and all that stuff um but before that my whole childhood i was introduced to what remains most of my favorite music by Mm. my parents um my mom would introduce me to different things when she thought i was ready like she'd be like okay i think you're ready for bob dylan now Ah, (laughs) and um, mom yeah no i'm i'm so grateful to my parents for that um a lot of 60s and 70s songwriters um my mom's favorite is Chris Christopherson mm-hmm. and and her dad loves Willie Nelson and um, so there was a lot of the country stuff and then also Joni Mitchell was really big for me. Mm-hmm. Her album Blue rocked my world and I think the song A Case of You particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was a teenager and writing my first real songs and you know they were there were seeds of ideas and and some nice melodies but they were pretty cliche and and my mom i remember saying just listen to a case of you a few times this is a a lesson in songwriting and um and from there i i fell in love with leonard cohen who's one of my all-time favorites tom petty Mm -hmm. fleetwood mac um and then later on other bands like big star and the zombies Mm -hmm. and the kinks and um carol king was another one that my mom introduced me to young she tried to introduce me to a lot of female yeah uh, singers and songwriters um and and then yeah i think by the time i got to be end of high school and and that summer after i knew that that's what i wanted to do oh by high school even so you weren't even in college yet when you'd figured that out yeah it was it was the very end of high school um i think when i joined that first band so the summer after is when we started playing out a lot and yeah. and i got the bug do you remember your first performer as a front woman? 
in a band? Like what it felt like to stand up in front of people? Like, do because you, you'd come out of drama, so you must. If, if you'd had stage fright, you'd probably learned how to address it or learn yeah. how to work with it instead of against it. So that probably wasn't a challenge. But like, I still remember because I played in bands for years before I and I was a singer. I came up through a choral program. Yeah, and I mean a little bit of drama, but not very much. I was never very good at acting. <laughs> um, music was always my jam. <laughs> no pun intended. But when I'm, you know, I, I knew somewhere along the line I wanted to make the switch to be the front person because I had things to say artistically, musically. Like I wanted to be that singer. I wanted to be my band, not playing in someone else's right. band. So do you remember what, like, what that felt like? I do. Yeah, I remember. Well, two things. I remember my first time getting up on a stage and and singing a song, just as a singer, not in the context of the plays or musicals that I was doing when I was younger. I was in seventh grade and I performed at our, our musical or at our uh, talent show. Mm -hmm. And um, I did the Beatles, let it be. And I was very small. I was four foot 11 in my little school uniform and Mm. I was terrified, but I remember I got my very first press (laughs) from our our school newspaper. Was it favorable? Yeah, it said, you know, it was just describing all of the different uh, performances and I got a little mention, it said, quote, and a powerful rendition of Let It Be and I was, I remember that, that feeling. Yeah. Um, And then when I got to college, I think that was when I did my first performance with my own songs that Mm. I had written. And it was in the basement of a dorm, and okay. it was a little uh, a little singer songwriter showcase. I think it was called After Hours, and I remember one of the songs was about a guy I had just started dating there, and I got so nervous because he was there that I forgot the words Uh-oh. to one of the lines because I tried to change the lyrics so he wouldn't know it was about him, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I had to like I think I can't remember if I started over or if I just kind of fumbled through it but um but i remember it being really exciting and gratifying to start playing out like that because that's a big switch i think uh a big difference between a lot of people who are actors or musical theater types now granted they're performing sondheim and they're performing rogers and hart who knows what they're performing right they they, but that material i mean as, as great as it is it's very different from performing your own material. It is. And interpreting, which is something that came to pass for the first time, kind of in the era of songwriting that you came up cutting your teeth on, listening to, and myself too. You know, that was the, like the, the, the James Taylors and the Beatles and the yeah. you know, bands who were doing their own music because before the 60s, it wasn't, that was, seemed kind of rare. Right. Some artists did, the Chuck Berries of the world, but you know, there, there was a, I mean, and it still is to a certain point, there's a separation between the performers and the writers. Nashville is very compartmentalized like that. It's true. Um, less so now, perhaps, but I just find that fascinating. So now that was a solo performance. Did you ever? Did you ever put together like a, your first band? Like were you fronting a band at some? I point? I did. Yeah, that's a very different experience too. There's so much more in terms of dynamics and power. Absolutely. Yeah, my first band was at Vassar. I met this guy John outside of auditions for guitar lessons Mm -hmm. and we got to talking and he was from hawaii and a shark wrangler in the summer that was his summer job jesus so we called our band shark wrangler did he have what did he have missing fingers (laughs) surprisingly no i still don't understand what that entailed but i thought it was kind of funny and um so that we named our band shark wrangler which didn't fit the music at all (laughs) Eh, that doesn't matter but yeah we would practice in the basement of joss our dorm and um we grabbed another couple musicians to play with us and would play shows um, 
there was this organization on campus called the VC Punks that were mm-hmm. kind of DIY. And um, we did a lot of VC Punks shows because th- those were the shows for, for on-campus bands. Yeah. Were you playing guitar in that ensemble as well as singing? I was sometimes, yeah. I think I think I was singing more at that okay. point in that band. I just, I mean, this is territory. Maybe musicians, um, excuse me, maybe non-musicians don't really appreciate the difference, like the subtle differences between these things. But I think they're huge for a performer. Totally. You know, I grew up in show choir. You know, oh, really? singing and dancing and sequin vests and, and dance shoes. <laughs> no you way. know, I mean, I got into it because it was fun. It was a way to get out of class, and I loved it. It was so much fun performing. But like, I could take or leave a chorus line. Yeah, that's not really my thing. Definitely. You know, I was into Pink Floyd. You know, totally. And uh, you know, I and Van Halen. Like, I wanted to rock. Yeah, you it's know, just I, wanted... I feel I felt the same way. I think for me, it took a little longer to find that that was my calling because. It just wasn't really an option in school, yeah. you know. There, there's no yeah, like yeah, yeah. There's rock ma- band class, that. you know, when you're especially yeah. in you know middle school and high school. So uh, it took finishing high school, I think, to fully realize that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, just like that time is such an important time in a person's life, whatever they're into at that time. And I'm so glad that I had music because it. Uh, I devoted all my time to that. You know, I was in the jazz band and I was in the choir and I was in the show choir. You know, I couldn't have been in sports if I if I had to. I wouldn't <laughs> right. have had time. Yeah, my school, I, I remember I had to choose because I was actually surprisingly athletic um, as a younger kid. and Weightlifter? Did, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Bench press. Uh, no, I, I was, I did a lot of volleyball, which is a very LA girl sport, I think, um, but also soccer and softball and uh there just wasn't time by the time i got to high school to do yeah. everything so i kind of had to choose choose the arts <laughs> choose life choose the art <laughs> yeah exactly psa <laughs> and, exactly and fund it fund it that's one thing i tell people all the time when the new record comes out i encourage people to go buy mara's new record do you have a title yet or is it it's under wraps no fun no fun okay so it's okay there's an eponymous song yes. i love that i love the word eponymous any chance i get to use the word eponymous it's <laughs> a good word and deciduous Ooh. And coniferous. I know those are both trees, but I just like the way those I like the way those syllables roll off my tongue. You like the ones that end in O U S. I do, but I like the, that combination of syllables together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pleasing. Deciduous. The 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 DJ. I don't know what it is. I just I love language. Have it's, you ever worked any of those into a song? I have not worked coniferous or deciduous <laughs> into a song, but that's a good challenge. I mean, I next writing prompt. Yes, you know what? I want to let's talk about writing. We'll come back. I want you sure. to play another song. We'll come back. We'll talk about writing because like, I know you're into the concept. And I know I am too, so I'm sure there's lots of stuff to discuss here. What's the next tune you're going to play? The next one is called American Dream. Oh, Lord. Here we are because this is topical, right? And this actually feeds right. Let's, let's actually come back. We'll talk about that because in the context of songwriting, it makes perfect sense. It'll all shoehorn in there very, very nicely. So my guest this week on Independence Day, Mara Connor, Los Angeles-based, I was going to say girl, but you're a young woman. And uh, excellent music, very 70s inspired. She's got her bona fides. She came up listening to the right type of stuff to do that kind of music, and it shows in the music. So check this out. This is the song American Dream on Independence Day. Rosie works a double at the diner can't afford the weekends off Since she got the slip last December From her secretary job Her oldest son's back in the service 
She hopes he'll make it home for Christmas Some people get what they want The rest they just get by Some people they get to live The rest just try to stay alive Cause hometown heroes and beauty queens Their hopes are blown to smithereens they go on chasing the American dream Billy slips some liquor in his coffee As he opens up the bar it's been six years since he was sober he used to be a football star Now he just stares up at the TV Clutching his cup of Joe and whiskey Some people get what they want The rest they just get by Some people they get to live The rest just try to stay alive Town heroes and beauty queens Their hopes get blown to smithereens And they'll die chasing the American dream Julie takes her children to the rally of her favorite candidate Another billionaire who swears he's for the proletariat He promises to help the miners Soldiers and moms who work at diners Some people get what they want The rest they just get by some people they get to live, the rest just try to survive Cause hometown heroes and beauty queens They place their bets on the wrong team All in the name of the American dream All in the name of the American some topical music by Mara Connor here on Independence Day. You can check her out at maraconnor.com, M-A-R-A-C-O-N-N-O-R. Welcome to the show. So lovely to see you. So lovely to have you here. Thank you. Great Another to great be here. song. Uh, I want to talk about songwriting because to me, that's like an avocation. If people were to ask me of all the things I've done in my life, having been around the world, climbed mountains, made beer, <laughs> um, high school, you know, college graduate, all those things, I'm most proud of my songs. And because I've worked very, very hard on those, and they're very personal, uh, it's such a songwriting is such a unique art form. I think it really is. Um, was was writing first of all? Let me just ask you this: It's a general question. Was writing your own songs always part of the plan, or is that something that kind of developed along the way? For me, I, I started on guitar. Like I didn't know that I was going to write. Like I started, oh, like I started as the guitar player, and I love doing that because I still love the guitar. Uh, but then not, you know, very shortly thereafter, I knew I had things to say. How was it for you? I was the opposite. I started playing guitar, I think, to 
have a way of accompanying myself and yep. the songs that I was writing. Um, like I said, I think the first songs I wrote, I must have been three or four years old and um, I couldn't play an instrument. So I went into the studio for the first time with my dad's friend, Steve, who had a recording studio in his garage and he was playing all of these kind of funny, cheesy guitar parts over over my singing, which was also very funny. Um, but yeah, I, I, started, um, I started writing songs. I felt like I... I needed an outlet to express the feelings that were inexpressible mm -hmm. in any other way. And and it came out in songwriting. And guitar was the instrument that I gravitated towards. Okay. Because it's a challenging it's a challenging art form. Because if you're writing writing narrative, you're writing not to say prose, but you're writing a story, a narrative story, mm -hmm. that's an art form unto itself, but you've got a lot of real estate. You could write a 10-page story, a 50-page story, a 100-page story, 300-page story. It's endless. Fiction, nonfiction, it's totally tabula rasa. Now, it's also tabula rasa as a songwriter you know, when you're writing within the framework of writing songs, but you still have to fit it into stanzas. Right. You know, of course, you can blur the rules. We can get all you know existential about it, but... There's a given structure. There's a structure, to a song. and yeah. it can't. You can't just go on and on and on. At least not in every song. Like you can have your run-on song, right. or two, but they all can't be like that. It, it wouldn't work. Stanzas and end rhyme and alliteration and all these different things. It's like poetry grafted onto something else that's restricted. And in those restrictions, there's a freedom. In within those restrictions, there's a lot that you can do. But like, like I think that's interesting to like as a writer talking to another writer to set yourself up within that restrictive framework. Yeah, and then try to find your own voice. It's like Leonard Cohen wrote forty-eight verses or something yeah. for Hallelujah, but right. you don't fit all of them in the final product. Yeah. So when you approach a song idea, you know, tell me, tell me for you how it works. Are you tinkering on guitar? Are you standing in line at In-N-Out Burger? Like what? <laughs> Where do the seeds come from, and how then do you move that into the next stage? I think for me, the songs that stick with me and the ones that seem to stick with other people are songs that kind of almost wrote themselves. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that usually were sparked by some kind of intense feeling um, that almost an over, you know, an outpouring of emotion yeah. that I then feel, grab a guitar and just try to let it come out of me in whatever way it does. And yeah. and usually those songs come kind of fully formed, weirdly enough, and all at once. Mm -hmm. um, every so often I'll go back and, and change a line or two, um, mm -hmm. a word or something. But for me, it's usually dropping whatever I'm doing, mm -hmm. grabbing my guitar and and maybe a pad of paper and a pen or even my my iPhone with my voice note yeah. going to try to capture it before it's gone. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that, I mean, it can certainly change and morph into something, whatever it's going to be. But that initial inspiration, that spark, I call them seeds, mm -hmm. um, is so important to capture that before, because I'm bad at, I mean, I shouldn't say I'm bad at this, but I've learned through practice to, uh, you can run with that ball as far as you want and change it and morph it, you know, right? Because when you're, when the ideas are coming fast and furious, when you first get that seed, that spark, 
you need, if you're anything like me, you get a bunch of them, and they're all the same song, but you're not sure where they're going to be. But I still think it's crucial, critical, that you get that first inspiration down because I feel like in the, within the medium of songwriting, at least for me, you want it to be accessible to a certain, a certain extent. Like you want people to listen to it and sure. you want people to hear it because that's how we get that shared experience. And there's a simplicity in that, like a Tom, Tom Petty, John Prine, elegant simplicity to, to capture something that's just a slight turn off of what would be boring otherwise. Right, and that's the key that you're capturing with that first spark. Because if obviously, if it if it clicked into your brain as something just a little bit off of normal in a good, interesting way, then maybe the listener will too. But you've got to get that seed down. Totally. And I try to that's a try, I try to be very dogmatic about that. Get that first idea down. Once the first idea is down, on the recorder or whatever, go see what it becomes. Maybe it'll be better. You don't know, but you have that initial idea to go back to. I think absolutely. Do you, you said you rewrite some? Not much. Very rarely. Really? I think the ones that I that I keep and and play out with are the ones that came to me pretty much as they as they end up. Okay. Um, but I think I agree with you in that getting those initial ideas down is really important because I think those seeds are the most special and unique. And I I think a lot of times the the specificity is what becomes universal to the listener because yeah. it gives you a, a window into someone's personal story that the listener hopefully relates to, even if it's right. entirely different from their experience, just because it's so specific, you know? Yeah. Do you, you know, you've, you're bona fides, you know, you're Joni Mitchells of the world, world, the people that you mentioned before that you kind of look to as songwriting inspiration. I mean, they're masters at working at metaphor. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about something, the song you just played, American Dream, and that, you know, we live in very trying times. You know, our society is facing an upheaval of sorts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny in a way, I was just listening to a podcast that posits that we actually have more in common than we think we do. Uh, it's just that, you know, the way it is played out in our political sphere and in our media has amplified the division more than the things we have in common. Now, Absolutely. maybe that's optimistic. Perhaps that's me with my head in the sand. I'd like to think that we're fighting for something common. You know, otherwise, what are we fighting for at all? But in this particular song, you know, because I have a similar song in my new batch of songs, uh, you're addressing things more topically, more directly. Did you, because I'm having a challenge with that myself, because I've always tried to hide things in metaphor a little bit more and yeah. obfuscate the truth a little bit. Like, did you intend to just go right for it? Or like, how, how did you approach it? Well, this song, American Dream, came to me kind of recently. I I was trying to figure out how to articulate all of these complicated feelings I've been having with the state of the world and our current administration and everything and um I wrote one right after the presidential election that was very on the nose more so than this right. one kind of a a call to action mm -hmm. raise your fist Protest in the air song. yeah anthem and it just felt too on the nose and and a little preachy and so I wanted to avoid being a preacher and come at it more from a a storytelling perspective and and looking at real people. Mm -hmm. And so I just started thinking about how all of these 
people were conned into voting for an American dream that didn't include them. Yeah. And and I'm I'm trying not to come at it from a judgmental perspective. I think, you know, I'm I'm compassionate or I try to be to people who who made that mistake. Um because to them, Trump. it's not a mistake. No, it, therein lies the challenge. Yeah, and it, and it is a very trying time, and we are very divided. Um, but I kind of tried to come at it from that perspective, and and find sort of a a kernel of understanding in that. Yeah. I guess it's just, it's such a challenge for me because you know the, I feel these things deeply. About our society, um, you know, and I and I, I am I have a lot of empathy uh, for people in economically, let's say, disenfranchised positions. Yeah, Myself, I've had issues with that. I was out of work for a long time when the economy collapsed a few years ago. Right. Uh, many many people were, and I agree with people that they've been disenfranchised, and I agree with people that they've been uh, marginalized. Maybe even a better word. I just happen to disagree with the solution that or the current solution as it's being offered by, you know, our administration. Definitely. And the challenge is because I, I I'm I'm a whirlwind of emotions, and I'm, I'd be curious to know what you think about it because like I, I still have empathy, but I don't have empathy for people who are racists. It's hard to mean. The one thing I read very interesting recently in an article was. You know, they the people on uh, what I would consider to be the other side want compromise. They want us to meet them halfway. But what is the compromise between moral and immoral? What is the compromise between racist and not racist? I'm not going to meet you halfway. I'm not going to meet you halfway. Well, can we just have a little bit of racism? <laughs> no, we cannot. No, zero. <laughs> Fascism, the same. Uh, 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 xenophobia, the same. Uh, these issues, you know, like, then uh, therein lies, and so then that makes me angry, and so then I've got to find a way to articulate that in a song, and you know, and that's anger, I guess, easy, fast tempo, blah, 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 and then at one point I thought about going against type, and I'll make everything quiet, and address them with a hushed voice, but then it's like, but that doesn't quite fit what I've got going on, like I, the latest feeling I've had, and I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of this, is just to let it all be what it is, and let each song be whatever aspect of I'm feeling. I can each song can be its own version of or different point on the compass of how I feel at this time. I need to stop as an artist trying to wrangle it into one unified message because there is no one unified message. I totally agree. I think there's so many feelings right now about yeah. this time that we're living in and man, what a time to be alive and and to be able to capture any number of those, I think, you know, will speak to other people because yeah. we're all feeling all of those things. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, you look at other times when there's been upheavals. You know, we, we look to the late 60s, early 70s as a time. Coincidentally, the time <laughs> when such great music was being recorded. Maybe not and, such a coincidence. And released. And I think, well, no, I don't mean a coincidence in that way. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, quite literally inspired by it. But I meant coincidental in the terms of our conversation. Totally. The, I'm wondering what's going to happen. In terms of the arts, the arts are always, you know, in, in the Reagan years, you know, it wasn't as contentious as it is now, but, you know, class was starting to be a big thing in our country. You know, we'd come out of the 70s, we'd gotten beaten up in Vietnam as a society, and 
we had a lot of disenfranchised people. The economy wasn't doing great. Reagan came along and told everybody everything was going to be great. And whether or not you believe that, that's a whole separate discussion for someone else's podcast. But the art was interesting at that point, you know? Yeah. And... Uh, you know, and the, the grunge era, like the, the Pearl Jams and the Nirvanas of the world, it was my generation, a disaffected generation who'd been kind of, you know, all divorced parents and left to fend for ourselves at the, at the video arcade. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the music that your generation is making. I am too. And I think it's a really interesting time to be making art and an important time. I think, um, if there's any silver lining to everything happening politically right now, it's it's hopefully the response that this next generation is is giving, and um, yeah. you know, both artistically and in terms of finally, hopefully, waking up yeah. and and becoming politically engaged. I've definitely seen a shift. Um, I I voted with my mom for Hillary, and we were together when we started seeing the results pour in and it yeah. was pretty heartbreaking. And um, we turned that heartbreak into anger and yeah. <laughs> and action and marched together mm-hmm. at the Women's March and to see so many people, women and men and kids and, I mean, people f- from every, every kind of life um, all coming together in protest was really powerful and and I think it's continued um since then in a way that you know to to try to not have it just be a moment but become a movement yeah I hope I sincerely hope that you're right I sincerely hope that because uh the millennial generation I guess pretty much the one I'm talking about I mean two of the guys in my band are in that generation so I'm it's interesting like the jokes they don't get any of my jokes but like (laughs) there's a lot there's plenty of other commonalities over their heads but uh the the uh, the the millennials is a large generation, right? It come comparable perhaps to the boomers, which was also the last time there was a very large generation, and they have a lot of power, a lot of potential power, I should say. And I ho- I hope I hope that if anything good comes out of this time of upheaval in our country, I hope that there's not more blood. I'm, I'm that's something I'm always concerned about because the last time this happened, there was a lot of blood, and I don't want that. Um, not from either side, and I don't want either side bleeding in the streets, uh, or anywhere for that matter. But I hope that this generation realizes what they have, the strength they have, and has watched carefully, because they're, you know, God knows they're always on their phones. You see it all the time, and every screen, at the gas station, you can't miss it, it's everywhere. And how powerful media is and how, what great responsibility that is. And I, I hope that you're right. And I, I hope the music's great. And I hope that, I don't know. I just hope things get better, I guess, more I than anything. I hope so, too. I don't know how. Let's pivot to Let's pivot to other, like, a lighter, happier things. Let's talk <laughs> sure. a little bit more about songwriting a little bit more. Um, in terms of the new record, uh, you know, you got to work with some producers. But you didn't record it here in L.A. Like, tell me how that came to pass. So at the time, I was living in New York, and just very randomly, someone told me, you should check out this studio in Nashville. It's called The Bomb Shelter. And just sort of a light bulb moment that I just kept in the back of my head. And um, a few months later, I was invited to go to Bonnaroo, the music festival just outside of Nashville, yeah. with some friends who do this great um, 
It's called the Refill Revolution, and they have the Refill. The Refill Revolution. I said Reefer Revolution, oh, <laughs> which sounds <laughs> very much like too. a Bonnaroo thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that there as well. But um, they they do this whole sustainability campaign. They're called the Plastic Pollution Coalition, and um, and so I went and volunteered and helped out with them, and um, through that ended up in Nashville and was crashing on some new friends couches and I I just had a week to kill in Nashville and um, fell in love with it and called up the studio and ended up <clears throat> getting a, a visit and it was one of those kind of felt like fate like I mm-hmm. walked in the door and and kind of knew right away it's this great studio in East Nashville and which is the hottest place to be in our circles of musical friends these days yeah it's its own world um it's nothing like the kind of downtown country pop Nashville uh that most people associate with the city um and yeah it's this it's this great studio um they record almost everything to tape and my producer Andrea Tokic who's amazing built it from the ground up with a bunch of friends, um, one of whom I was staying with in his his spare bedroom because his roommate was another musician on tour at the time. And from the first visit, I I just knew I wanted to to do something there. So we, we booked a date and I came out, just me and my guitar. And oh, wow. I was very, very green um, in terms of recording. Um, I didn't really even know what to expect. And I hadn't even met my producer actually, because when I toured the studio, he was out of town recording something in New Orleans. So um, I came in and and we met for the first time, the first day of recording and just luckily really hit it off and and started started making the music. So you just jump right into making the record right then and there. We did, yeah. Now, (laughs) first of all, I, I I commend your courage of just like jumping in and doing it. Thank you. Like sometimes, I mean, I'm not implying that you did or did not, but like sometimes you just don't know any better. You just like do something. You know, people tell me all the time, like, well, how did you do that? I'm like, well, no one told me I couldn't. I just did it. Yeah, I think I was just sort of following what felt right. And it was so weird that I ended up in Nashville because I am from Los Angeles. I lived in New York and it just kind of just felt meant to be. Yeah. Now, was the whole record done? Is that studio in Nashville? Or most, most of the of record, yeah. Okay. One song I started in New York at the Magic Shop before it closed down, which was a really cool studio that unfortunately didn't make it. But they had some great records come out of there, David Bowie and Sonic Youth and a bunch of people yeah, recorded yeah. there in the 80s and 90s and stuff. And um, and then we finished that song in Nashville along with most of the other ones. I have a duet on the record with Joseph Arthur, who's mm-hmm. a New York-based songwriter. Um, so his vocals were done at his home studio okay. in Brooklyn. And then um, there's one song I recorded in Los Angeles. It's called Wildfire. And that one is inspired by moving back home to L.A. And um, it's a kind of an ode to Southern California, I think, in some ways. Um it's a metaphor about, it's about a person, but it's also about Los Angeles and yeah. um, it has references to the, the Santa Ana winds that I call the devil winds in the song. And yeah. and um, I wanted it to have sort of a California spirit. So I, I recorded that one with um, my friend Adrian Simon, who's an awesome producer who was in town from New York and a bunch of my friends. And um, otherwise, it was mostly in Nashville. So working in Nashville, were you using Nashville-based musicians? Did, like, did the producer orchestrate all of that? Yes. Andrea came through in a big way, finding some of the best 
musicians I've ever worked with, um, this wonderful multi-instrumentalist and producer in his own right, John Estes, who plays almost everything on the record. And he also did the string arrangement for No Fun. And um, Dave Racine is a wonderful drummer who drummed with us. And um, my friend Lydia Luce did some strings on No Fun, the single. And um, we had various backup singers come in. Our friend Jem Cohen, who owns the Fond Object record store in Nashville, one of my favorite record stores, and also has a band of his own, the Etts. And um, my friend Billy Bennett did some background vocals, who at the time was the engineer in the other room mm-hmm. at the bomb shelter. And um, he used to be a, a kicker for for Georgia back in the day, oh, um, college football. He he still holds records. Um, mm-hmm. And then he, he found music. But yeah, so it was a whole, it was really special. Um, I came into the the Nashville scene knowing no one and next to nothing <laughs> about recording. I knew, I knew what I wanted, I think to a certain degree sonically. And, um, you know, I had, I had my references and I had my songs written, but a lot of it was the people that we ended up working with. And yeah. I think the, their spirit and, and their influence is very clear on the record. I think geography is very, very important in music, you know, the people think I'm crazy because when I when I hear about a band, the first question invariably I always ask is where are they from? To me, that gives it a sense of place. I mean, like the best songwriters are so good at writing a sense of place into their music. Tom Waits does this all the time. Like uh, Springsteen does that. Um, Tom Petty does that. Uh, it's just the thing. Totally, that, you know, it, it it grounds the song. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be like it was a dark and stormy night in Cleveland. It doesn't have to be that obvious, but that flavor or that feel of the people in those places and their folklore and their cares and their fears like makes it into the music. Do you think, you know, having, did you, were you living in New York and then traveling to Nashville most of the time while you're doing the record or had you moved in the process to LA? By the time I started recording at the bomb shelter, I had just moved to LA. Okay. Yeah. So I, I feel very tied to my roots in, in Southern California and LA particularly, um, musically speaking. And then I think recording it in Nashville was an interesting thing because it added this other place, this this other element to it that I think helped make it kind of unique. Yeah. My question, the next question was going to be is, did did the town seep into the music? I think it did. You know? Like, that was the first time I'd recorded pedal steel on anything. Uh We have some pedal steel on it. And um, I think... Just the, you know, there's so many ways to record a song and, and no one right way. But at the bomb shelter, we we recorded, um, we tracked m- almost everything live. And, um, and then I would do some overdubs on vocals and different ornamental additional instruments. Yeah. But I think that live feel is very specific. Um, and... And the players themselves are, I mean, the musicianship in Nashville is so impressive. And yeah. I think that to me at least comes across on the recordings and um just just the the vibe of this particular studio is really special and and strong and i think that andrea has a sound of his own um he he produced the first alabama shakes record and worked with hooray for the riffraff and margot price a lot of really badass female songwriters um which was part of what drew me to him yeah and um I think, I think there's a lot of him on the record too, and and me. It's a it's a total collaboration. Yeah, 
Finding that relationship to work with a producer, I think, is, is so very, very essential. I've always produced myself, mostly out of pragmatism. I know yeah. how to do it. Uh, I have a very strong vision about what I'm trying to accomplish. And I've produced other artists as well. I, I oh, cool. love producing. It's one of my favorite things to do is to like help someone achieve what they're... It's the one thing I wish I could do more in my life. Um, and I've talked to other friends around town who are kind of like me. They're musicians who do some producing. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like, man, I wish I could do more of that. You know, there isn't really... A, again, there's not really a, a program of study for that exactly. You know, I went to Berkeley College of Music for a while. They kind of have an MP&E, music production and engineering. It may have changed names since then. But it doesn't mean that you're going to just like graduate and then go get a job being a producer. Right. You know, being a producer, I think, is like a voodoo art. Oh, totally. You know, it's a combination of engineering skills, people management skills, music skills, uh, things that are out in the ether that you don't even know what they are and couldn't describe in a million years. And then developing that trust with someone because I, you know, you could confirm or deny this, but music is such a personal thing. And trusting someone with that rawness and that vulnerability is hard. It's terrifying. Think, you know, and maybe that's one of the reasons I produce myself. You know, yeah. I don't have to worry about that. It's true. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, it was such a leap of faith going to Nashville for me. And um, I mean, I, I really respected Andrea and his work, so it wasn't like I was going in yeah. completely out of the blue. But, um, but yeah, I I think it it's such a gift, and I, producing is such a strange, magical yeah. thing. And it's not like the label said, you know, hey, uh, Mar, you're going to work with so and so, because that's a different thing too. I've heard I've heard great, you know great stories about how those things worked out and I've also heard horror stories about totally. tens of thousands of dollars being burned in <laughs> studios to, and then having it be like this is just not it's not happening it's yeah, not working yeah I bet because I don't know I feel like you know like before I mentioned like how did, did Nashville seep into the music I feel like everything seeps into the music you know oh, because completely. music is such a personal thing uh, and you know the time that we're in now it would be hard for that not to seep like Iron and Wine an artist uh, who I love, 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 love. Last year, uh, they had a song come out called Call It Dreaming. You know, And his mm -hmm. music is very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Calming. Totally. You know, there's some dissonance definitely mixed in there. He's experimental in that yeah. way. I think but I like, heard him for the first time on the Garden State soundtrack. Oh, yeah. When I was a younger. lot of people did. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people did. Um, it was very early in his career. Sam Beam we're talking about here. But the song that came out last year called Call It Dreaming when I, I was at work and the video came on and it's a very pastoral setting. There's a pickup truck and a, he's got it's a dog and there's some people riding on this country road and it's, it's like evening and it's, just, it's a very pastoral calming setting and the song itself is very beautiful. And it made me weep because oh, in wow. our contentious time, in our time, like that song saved me last year because that was the first year of the administration we'd had last year. And I was raw. Everything was raw. Um, and... Like to have that gift from this artist at that time, like like I have something I call blind faith artists, which are artists I will buy anything that they make. Right. There's only a few of them, right? And some people will kind of fall from favor from that list, and new ones are certainly welcome to come on that list. But like Iron and Wine for me is a blind. I will buy it. You tell me there's a new Iron and Wine record. Here's my twenty bucks. You're a loyal I'm just fan. Buy it. And like th it's it's when things like that happen that cement that. Like I was already on board, but like Jesus, when he released that tune, I, want, I hope oh, you can go go listen to it to after this. I'll yeah. play it for you when Sounds we're done. Amazing, uh, such a beautiful, beautiful song. 
Um, anyway, we've got one more song. What's next? You know, we could talk all night, but I know you've got places to be, and so do I. So, what is this? Uh, what's this last song you're going to play for us? This is a new song of mine called Navy Yard. No, they're all new songs, are they not? Yeah, I guess they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all new. They're all to new. You. All right, so uh, tell me just a wee bit about it, and then let's hear it. Um, this is a song about a guy who cried on our first date after hearing a Lou Reed song come on. Do you know what to do about boys crying? Because like, like some girls don't know how to handle that. I I don't know if I was very sympathetic. I, I was so taken aback, but um, I think he just kind of got up and, and went to the bathroom and, yeah. and wiped his eyes. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Like women, you know, and these are gross generalizations, but like women want us to be both strong and sensitive at the same time. And it's hard for us to know, you know, what, you know, we're still dealing with the fallout from the sexual revolution and what the roles are. I mean, I, I love smart, empowered women. That's what I want. That's what I want every woman to be. If that's what they want, I hope. Uh, Absolutely. But like dealing with that vulnerability from the other side, it's weird. I don't think I've ever cried on a first date. But like, shouldn't we have the ability to cry on the first date? We certainly should. Absolutely should. should. And I mean, this is someone that I ended up having a long-term relationship with. So so. it wasn't a disqualifier. No, it wasn't. I mean, I actually, I think um, sensitivity in a man is very attractive. And I think it's crucial in these times to to have some... Some way to access your feelings and and not to uh, to promote that toxic masculinity. Yeah. and I, from my perspective, I tend to believe that it's the people who are the most sensitive and in tune that are actually the strongest. Absolutely, because they have the ability to bend rather than just break when the when the stuff gets. Yeah, hard. I grew up hard. with a, a very um, strong feminist father who's also an actor, so he's mm, very cool. in touch with his emotions, and I remember. I think I saw him cry for the first time when I was a little kid and it really shocked me at the time, yeah. but but it was a it was a healthy thing to yeah. see, you know? Like you're a person, you have feelings <laughs> like all of us. <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah. Uh, and Mara, and kudos for you. And here's the thing, here's the danger of dating musicians though, is that they're going to write your stuff into songs. So if you cry on the first date, sometimes this is what you wind up with. So this is my guest this week on Independence Day, Mara Connor. This is the last song. The song is called Navy Yard on Independence Day. I walked you home long after dark to the Navy Yard. Past millionaires and homeless men, bodegas and bars. You said, How about you? Enough about me. Then on came Louie. I watched you cry, and I saw the pain behind your brown eyes. I said, Who are you? What have you done to all that I knew? TV was on, you blacked out the room We slept until two You wrote me a song as I fell asleep You played it for me 
Another lovely, lovely song, Mara. Man, I like your work. I like what you do. Thank you. And I'm, I'm honored to sit here and listen to these tunes. I feel like I'm a, an audience of one, getting a <laughs> private concert, which is what I usually do on this show. And it's great to see an artist like about to pop, I think. Because oh, I think wow. that you know, you've got, you've got the, the, the depth of feeling, the heart, the voice, um, surrounded by good people. Uh, you, you, you've got the right bona fides in terms of the artists you grew up listening to. Uh, and I can't wait to see great things out of you in Thank your you career. So much. I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. And I hope everyone picks up the new record, which is called No Fun. Yes. Which you should also check out. The, there's a little write up in Rolling Stone about that. Uh, how many tracks? Is this a, like a long record, kind of in the middle, like 10 or so? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a I'm not actually sure exactly yeah. how many <laughs> yet. It's fun. That's a fun process. Yeah. Like that last bit is, it's just so crazy when you're about to let that bird fly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not yours anymore at that point. It's exciting. I can't. I can't wait to release it into the world. Let it give it wings. <laughs> Man, because that's when people will start to come up to you. I mean, that may get they already do it because I know you're performing these songs. But they come up to you like, oh, that song Navy Yard reminds me about the time when I did this and this and this. And like, I love like that's that's where the song really lives. That's that person's song now. Totally. I'm the channel, thankfully by which that that piece of art came into the world. And yes, it's got my imprint all over it. Like I I did it. I suppose. But, or you did it, but like that's the life of that song. Absolutely. And that's I think where it matters. What I love the most about songwriting maybe is that each song is almost like a little time capsule yeah. of a feeling. And so the details might not be the same for someone, but, but the beautiful thing about music is that you can listen to a song and immediately go to that place yeah. personally. And so, yeah, if someone someone hears my music and relates to it and it and it does anything for them emotionally on any level yeah. that's awesome it's the soundtrack to our lives 
you know, and for people who are for whom music is, is the most important thing, it will never be otherwise. You know, I can, I can I can list a dozen albums. You could pick. You could go through my collection, and you could go down the list, and you could say, "Well, what is that? Where, where are you now when you listen to that song?" And I can tell you exactly. I can tell you what the chili dog tastes like. I don't eat chili dogs anymore. They're terrible <laughs> for you. But I could tell you like wh- who my friends were, what time of year it was, absolutely, like what job, what dopey job I had. Takes uh, you right back. Takes me right there, and to provide that soundtrack, I think, is an honor. I think anyway. Me too. Uh, so, uh, man, I've had a great time talking to you. Me too. Um, it's been such a I w- pleasure. I wish you the best. I'm looking forward at some point to coming out and seeing you do what you do live. Um, and and I also, but one thing, at some point we're going to have you back on the show, like in a few years, because that's one that. thing I love to do, and is to see these songs, then your own songs become your capsule for that time in your life, because you're you're at the start of this thing. You know, when this record 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, you'll look back and go like, oh, why did I record that song in that key? (laughs) But you'll also be like, man, I remember exactly what that was about. And I remember, and it'll become something different. It'll change for you. It's fascinating. Totally. I love these things. Anyway, uh, maraconnor.com is where you can find her. There's some other social media links here. She's on the Facebook. It's Mara Connor Music. Uh, Instagram, it's Mara Connor. And Twitter is Mara underscore Connor, the dreaded underscore. The dreaded. Man, at least your name's Mara Connor. When you're Joe Armstrong, man, I have joearmstrong.com. Oh, yeah. But like, a it's a curse. Out there. It's a lot of Joe Armstrongs out there, including Billy Joe Armstrong's son. I've started using the hashtag uh, NotBillyJoe. <laughs> in a lot of the posts I put up there because that's where people invariably wind up when they're trying to find me. They find that guy. I have nothing against that guy, but he's, he, he stole my thunder. You got to set yourself apart. Uh, so, Mara, the best of luck to you. Thank you, I and thank you so uh, much for having me. I, uh, you're, you're so welcome, and I can't wait to hear the new record. So thank you to Mara Connor, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The nimble Tony Tone Loke Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. And thank you, Loke. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society, another independent band you should check out. For Independence Day, as always, I am Joe Armstrong. If you do one thing today, please be good to one another.